Hello and welcome to the latest Lancet Oncology podcast. My name is Francesca Towie and today we're speaking about an article on radiotherapy versus transoral robotic surgery and neck dissection for oropharyngeal squamous cell carcinoma and this is the ORITA trial and is in the October issue of the Lancet Oncology. I'm delighted to be joined by two of the authors from that paper. We have Anthony Nichols and David Palmer. Welcome both. Please, can you introduce yourselves? Yeah, good morning, Francesca. Yep, my name is Anthony Nichols. I'm a surgeon scientist and a head and neck cancer surgeon at the University of Western Ontario. And I'm David Palma. I'm a radiation oncologist and a clinician scientist also at Western University in Canada. First of all, please could you tell us a little bit about the background of this study, which is the ORITA study, and why your results are so important and timely to this area of oncology? Well, in head and neck cancer, over the past 10 or 20 years, we've seen an epidemic of cancers related to the human papilloma virus. The human papilloma virus is better known for causing cancers like cervical cancer and penile cancer, but it also causes head and neck cancer. And these tend to be cancers that occur at the back of the tongue and in the tonsil, the area that we call the oropharynx. These HPV-related cancers are highly curable, but there's been a lot of debate about what the best treatment is. If you go back many decades, the treatment was often surgery, which required a big surgery, cutting through the mandible, cutting along the side of the tongue to get to the back of where you needed to go to get to the back of the tongue. And that led to a lot of side effects, a lot of permanent difficulties of swallowing. So many of the centers in the world at that time switched over to using radiation and chemotherapy. So those big incisions weren't needed. And radiation and chemotherapy were quite effective, but themselves had side effects that could be quite bothersome. Those can include long-term dry mouth, swallowing problems, even requiring a long-term feeding tube, a tube going through the belly into the stomach. And then the chemotherapy can have long-term side effects like nerve problems and hearing problems. So against this backdrop of a surgical approach that wasn't fantastic and a radiation approach that was good but gave a lot of side effects, a new surgical approach was developed called transoral robotic surgery. And what the robot allows the surgeon to do is to get back to those areas that are normally difficult to access by using the robot. And the robot can access those areas at the back of the tongue fairly easily. The robot also has other advantages in terms of removing any tremor and giving better control than you might otherwise get with just using your hands. So in many centers, transoral robotic surgery has taken off, particularly in the U.S., where about 80% of patients with oropharyngeal cancers have been getting surgery. And surgery was widely adopted because it was assumed that it was going to be better than radiation based on some retrospective comparisons. But the the thing that happened is that in the meantime, radiation also improved. And I use the analogy of how much your cell phone has changed in the past 20 years. Radiation delivery has changed even more. And our ability to avoid critical structures like the saliva glands, like the swallowing muscles, like the, the front of the mouth, that ability is unparalleled. And so Orator was a trial to really give us a head-to-head -head comparison of transoral robotic surgery versus radiation, and it's the only trial that has made that comparison. Can you summarize the key findings of your study and why you chose to focus on a comparison of quality of life and particularly swallowing? I know you said it's one of the side effects that might be affected by previous surgeries. Does the robotic surgery help? 
Yeah, so one of the main reported advantages of the primary surgery approach with the robot is that it results in improved swallowing in the short and long term. However, there's no randomized evidence that proves that, right? And when we've looked at the literature retrospectively, the case series, and that's really what we're working so from so far, uh, that involve transoral robotic surgery were really biased towards patients with smaller tumors uh, in their throat and less lymph nodes or smaller lymph nodes in their neck. And so really what you need to do is a randomized trial to remove all the biases of retrospective studies. And so thus we made our primary endpoint swallowing quality of life uh, using the MD Anderson dysphagia inventory. Um, it also allowed us to make this trial practical. Um, so although we would love to do a 1,000-person trial to evaluate survival in this disease, these HPV-positive patients have had such high survival, whether it be with surgery or radiation, uh, you would need something like 800 or 1,000 patients. And given that there are great challenges with randomizing to surgery and radiation in general, uh, we had to make it very pragmatic. And so our trial was powered for that very important endpoint of quality of life. So um, our primary finding was that this quality of life, swollen quality of life score was statistically significantly different between the two arms with the uh, radiation arm having a score of 86.9 versus 88.1 in the primary surgery arm at one year. This was statistically significant. However, we had pre-specified a 10-point difference as a clinically meaningful change, so it did not meet that threshold. Even given that, since our paper has been published, we've been contacted by some world experts in this swallowing score, including uh, one Dr. Kate Hutchison at MD Anderson, uh, who actually debated that, and she thought that this might actually be a clinically meaningful difference. The other thing we found is that uh, all of the patients that got primary radiation at one year were eating a normal diet, whereas about 16% of patients that had primary surgery had to modify the diet. They had to cut it up, they had to mince it or blend it, things like that at one year. And between those two things, it does suggest that there may be a, an edge to radiation over surgery. But what this uh, careful comparison um, through a randomized trial also allowed was evaluation of other uh, differences, such as differences in adverse events. And we found that the patients that had primary radiation had more hearing loss, drops in their white count neutropenia, uh, ringing in their ears. But patients in the surgery arm had a different spectrum of side effects, including some difficulty opening the mouth in a percentage of patients. There was bleeding. There was four episodes of bleeding in our 34 patients, including I'm very unfortunately, one bleeding-related fatality. Uh, we think that's an underreported phenomenon in transorobotic surgery. Um, we also noted that the patients that had primary radiation had less pain, and less pain medication use, and a trend towards less shoulder impairment than the patients that had primary surgery. So taken together, it at least provides the first really informed data where we're comparing apples to apples between primary radiation and primary surgery with the surgical patients having less hearing loss, less tinnitus, less low blood counts, um, but the radiation patients, two different swallowing metrics suggested that their swallowing may be better, that they had less pain, and they weren't subject to the risk of bleeding and trouble opening their mouth and shoulder dysfunction, and it really provides uh, high levels of uh, data to inform both patients and clinicians about their likely outcomes after these treatments. So it seems that from publication, like you said, you've had a lot of interest on your paper. So given that enthusiasm around as well transoral robotic surgery and robotic surgery in general, were you surprised by your results? 
And just second part, do you believe that oncologists should reconsider treatment choices in this setting on the basis of the results from your study? So if you'd asked me at the beginning of the study if I'd be surprised by the results that we ultimately had, I would say yes, I'd be absolutely surprised. Because at the beginning of the study, we were relying on data out of the U.S., these retrospective comparisons. And in hindsight now, we realized that those were unfair. It wasn't really an apples-to-apples comparison. By the end of the study, I was expecting more along the lines of a draw. And we were close to a draw, at least in terms of our clinical outcomes, as Anthony was saying. But what we saw over the course of the trial was that the patients that can undergo transoral robotic surgery that could enter the trial had very small tumors, and that's what made them amenable to transoral robotic surgery. But when you take patients with those very same small tumors and give them, often only they need radiation alone or chemoradiation, their outcomes are way better than the stereotyped outcomes from patients with radiation who have more advanced disease. And we began to really recognize that, okay, if you only have a two-centimeter tumor in your tonsil and you're getting radiation, yeah, the outcomes are quite good. So by the end, I was expecting more along the lines of a draw. But the results do make sense in light of what we've learned in the interim. Do I think that this should make people reconsider treatment choices? I think every randomized trial should make us, as a specialty, step back, recognize our own biases, and, and see how these fit into our evidence base. One of the problems we know in medicine is that physicians tend to interpret trials in, with the lens of what they already believe. They've done clever studies where they give physicians an abstract that either agrees with your baseline belief or disagrees with your baseline belief. And physicians tend to score abstracts much higher if they agree with that physician's preconceived biases. So we knew that regardless of the result of this trial, whether it was radiation on top, surgery on top, or a draw, when you ask people who are highly invested in the topic, they are going to react to the trial based on their preconceived notions. But if you take a step back and put on the hat of a patient, then we have evidence now that that at the very least, the preconceived ideas about TORS based on retrospective data were wrong. And at least every patient should have an informed discussion about the two. This idea that everybody is getting transoral robotic surgery in the U.S. or transoral surgery of some kind without ever meeting a radiation oncologist is no longer tenable. And what many centers are using now as a model of care is that all patients with a head and neck cancer need to be evaluated by both a surgeon and a radiation oncologist, ideally together in clinic, but even separately is, is, is good to get a fair opinion. And the way that we run our clinics, Anthony and I are not only close colleagues but good friends, and we run clinics together on a Friday morning. All new patients with head and neck cancer are seen by the two of us or two similar colleagues to really get a fair opinion. So when we're looking at reaction to this trial, I think we have to recognize what are people's preconceived biases coming in and how do those impact their interpretation. But it should be affecting our clinical decision-making. We've gone through the results and what they might mean. So let's look at the limitations. What were the main limitations of your study and how do they affect the interpretation of the results? So there are certainly several and then first and foremost it's a modest sample size and so our total sample size for the whole study was 68 and that's going to be the first thing that people point to. However, as I previously mentioned, there are significant challenges in randomizing to surgery and radiation and when we look through the literature this is actually on the larger end of trials that can randomize the surgery radiation. A similar trial uh, was attempted in the United States for HV negative disease, and it failed to accrue uh, because of these challenges. And so we had to make this pragmatic. The second is surgical expertise. So 
certainly uh, surgeons in the U.S. started doing, developed, and started using transoral robotic surgery um, a couple of years before we started in Canada. And when we opened the study, um, we had done a fair number of cases, but there's surgeons in the United States that had done a much larger volume. And so surgical expertise can potentially play a role. However, we comment that all the surgeons in our study are fellowship trained, so at least one year or more of extra cancer chaining, and all function in high-volume academic centers that are tertiary referrals for head and neck cancer. I'd also comment that a lot of the specific technique is less complicated than a lot of the procedures we, we uh, do. However, conceivably, this less tourist experience could affect outcomes. Um, I think if it did affect the outcomes, it would be things such as complications, such as bleeding or other side effects. But I think it's very unlikely that it affected swallowing. Um, I don't think there's a lot of variation in that technique. And actually, when we looked at the literature, the scores that we obtained in our study of 80.1 at one year were actually higher than in a systematic review from the United States, uh, which was 65 to 78. And so I think it's unlikely that that played a role, but conceivably could have. The other thing is after we had the uh, unfortunate complication of a bleeding-related death in trial, our data safety monitoring committee suggested the routine use of tracheostomies, which these patients wouldn't typically get. Um, and so that has been a source of criticism. However, we've analyzed that data, and there was no difference in swallowing between the patients that had the, these elective tracheostomies or not uh, at one year. And so I don't think that's a significant uh, limitation. With that being said, we've started a uh, larger study that's called the Order 2 study um, with 140 patients. And I think that hopefully with that increased sample size, it will have even inertia to shift the opinions of the oncologic community. So looking to the future, what are the next important areas of study for the treatment of oropharyngeal cancers, such as radiotherapy, de-escalation, or potentially other quality of life studies? So the, the big question now in oropharyngeal cancer is treatment de-escalation. And we had some fantastic evidence just presented at the ASTRO annual meeting a couple of weeks ago that really complements the findings of this study. We know that the cure rates with these oropharyngeal cancers that are HPV-related are very, very high. And so the question now is how much can we dial back the treatment and still maintain the cure rates? We've had some failures in this regard. Some recent randomized trials looked at taking out cisplatinum and putting in cetuximab, and that was not as good as we had hoped. But the data at Astro suggested that we could lower the dose of radiation from 70 gray to 60 gray and use weekly cisplatinum and still have fantastic outcomes. They reported two-year overall survival rates in the high 90s, around 97 or 98%. And that arm, or that approach at least, has been selected now for a non-inferiority trial, comparing it against 70 gray of radiation. So the standard arm, 70 gray of radiation with cisplatinum, the experimental arm, 60 gray with cisplatinum. There's also another experimental arm of 60 gray with immunotherapy. So the real, real question is, how do we de-escalate? Fitting into that is the trial that Anthony alluded to, which is Orator 2, and it is a, also a randomized trial, a pick-the-winner sort of a design, where we're taking a similar approach to orator, but dialing back the treatment and restricting the trial to HPV-positive cancer. So one arm is almost identical to the winning arm of HN002, and that's 60 gray of radiation with weekly cisplatinum. And the other arm is transoral robotic surgery or transoral surgery with a laser. And... 
after that surgery, if they need adjuvant radiation, the doses are lower, and no patients will receive chemotherapy after they've had surgery. So there won't be trimodality treatment unless something unusual happens like growth disease is left behind. So the approach is two modalities maximum in each arm. And so what we're going to have in a few years is we're going to have excellent randomized evidence comparing in one trial, which is HN005, this follow-up trial I was talking about, one trial is going to compare the standard of 70-gray versus the 60-gray approach with chemo. The ORA2 trial is going to compare that very similar 60-gray approach with chemo to transoral surgery. And so we can really make some informed decisions about what the best treatment approach is. And ORA2 is accruing extremely well with about 35 patients out of 140 enrolled. And I want to stress one reason why we're able to do this is because our Canadian surgeons have taken a very, I would say, outstanding approach of only offering transoral robotic surgery on trial for these patients. And that's something that I know that my specialty can learn a lot from in radiation oncology. But when you look at medical oncology, every new drug is only offered on a trial because sometimes new drugs are worse than you think. Sometimes they're worse than standard of care. But in radiation oncology and in surgery, sometimes we often give treatments without really testing them in a trial. And the problem with doing that is that as you get more and more experience giving a treatment, your biases tend to change and you tend to start to favor that treatment even without randomized evidence. And the example of that in my specialty is the use of protons. Um, which has now very limited randomized evidence in support of it, but up until a few weeks ago had really nothing. And so if we take this approach of only offering new treatments on trial, it really allows us to take steps forwards in evidence-based medicine. But if we don't take those steps, then it's very hard to convince people that our new treatments are effective. So hopefully in about three or four years, we'll have some excellent randomized evidence about treatment de-escalation. So it sounds like there's a lot going on in this field and lots of trial results to look forward to. And we encourage everyone to go and have a read of the paper, which is available online. So we'd just like to say thank you for Anthony and David for taking the time to speak to us about your Orator's trial. Thank you very, thank you very much. Thank you for listening.